This is a recording made in the chapel of the open book of a study in the epistle to the Hebrews. It is our custom at this meeting to read a portion of scripture together and those who are listening to this recording are invited to join us if they will. So will you switch off for a little while and read together with us Hebrews chapter 5 and 6. It's very essential, especially with an epistle like this one, that we not only concentrate our attention upon some particular word and examine it, which we must do, but continually to seek that we are in the right atmosphere, that we're dealing with it from the right point of view. Otherwise, we can get terribly astray. Let me remind you, that when we looked at the epistle as a whole, we found it had two pivotal points. It was an exhortation either to go on unto perfection, we read that this evening, or the alternative was you will draw back to perdition, and that comes at the end of chapter 10. They are the two words upon which this epistle, as it were, is strung. Either you go on, or you draw back. If you go on, you go on to perfection. If you draw back, you draw back to perdition. We'll have to leave the word perdition till we get to chapter 10, otherwise we shall be taking too much time. And then in this reading we had this evening, we had that other vexed uh, passage about being impossible to renew to repentance, which has cost so many heart-burning and despair. And in the structure of this epistle, it's waiting for us in chapter 12, another one who sought a place for repentance and didn't find it. But that was Esau, who despised his birthright. It has nothing whatever to do with salvation. He despised his birthright, and that's what was the danger in front of these people. The whole position of the epistle to the Hebrews is that they were a saved people, Chapter 3 addresses them as holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling. Redemption from sin is not in view. So I think it's good for us to remind ourselves of that, otherwise we shall read into it that which is not intended, and we shall miss that for which it was written. Now, come back to chapter 1, and notice one or two features. First of all, still continuing this thought of the um, background generally, Moses and the Passover is the type in scripture of the initial redemption in the evangelical sense. But Moses and the Passover doesn't figure in Hebrews, but another one does. And I think it's not accidental that he comes into chapter 4, if you look, verse 8. For if Jesus had given them rest, then would he not afterward have spoken of another day? Now, you will not be led astray by that translation. But of course there's a number of God's people who read that and think that refers to our Saviour. But if you read the whole argument, he goes back to the creation of Genesis 1, he comes forward and speaks of a, another day, of David, 
And he says, if Joshua, not Jesus, if Joshua, who led the children of Israel through that wilderness, across the Jordan, into the land of promise, if he had actually given them that rest, there would have been no need to have spoken another day afterwards when David spoke of it. Now this is important, because in the structure which you have in front of you, second part, there are two words. You notice, under the word um, Jesus, the letter C, there's another word written in green, Archegon. That is the word captain. And at the bottom of the chart, under the letter C, is another word written in green, Archidius. You see, those two words, both beginning with the same A-R-C-H, which means uh, beginning. The first one means a leader, a first leader. And the other was a first sacred one, or a high priest. Now, it's no news to you to know that the captain of the salvation is Joshua. He was the one that led the people out from Egypt into the land across the Jordan. But did he give them an absolute, glorious inheritance? No. Typically, there are many things in it, but no. And then when you go through the history of Israel, you come to another period when they had been once more captive, not this time to Egypt, but to another Gentile power. And then under Haggai and Zechariah and Zephaniah and those who came back with them, you have another outstanding figure. And the high priest at that period of return, his name is Joshua, and you can read his name, if you will, in Zechariah chapter 3. So you see, the history of the people of Israel, from the time they came out of Egypt to the time they went back after the captivity, is bounded by a man named Joshua, which is the Old Testament name which we call Jesus. Now, neither of them were successful, but they were types that Christ was going to gather to himself both the figure of captain, the leader, and the high priest afterwards. Now, you might like to see those two before we go any further. Chapter 2, verse 10. Hebrews 2, 10. For it became him for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons unto glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. You notice when we were reading just now chapter 5 verse 8 Though he were a son yet learned the obedience by the things which he suffered and being made perfect suffering leading to perfection. This is not the initial redemption from sin this is something which goes further or as we can express it in the language of verse 9 of chapter 6, but beloved, we are persuaded better things of you. That's one of the key words of Hebrews. And one of the better things is to do with those things which accompany salvation. Not salvation itself. Things which accompany salvation. So here we have the captain. Now, the high priest, you will discover, is in verse 17, 18. Wherefore in all things it behoved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. 
Four. Now instead of saying, four, he died, the just or the unjust, to bring us to God. That's the evangelical side. No, four. He hath himself, he, he that he, he himself hath suffered, being tempted, he is able to succor them that are tempted. Temptation. Now I've got a temptation to start on this, but I mustn't. But when we get to it, I think I shall demonstrate to you that this is not a temptation to sin. This is a temptation to trust God. That was the temptation in the wilderness. God never tempted any man in the wilderness to commit sin, but he did tempt him, test him, to see whether he would believe God wholeheartedly or no. And so we read um, in chapter 4, verse 15, for we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. Now, our Saviour didn't die the just or the unjust to deliver us from our infirmities. He died to deliver us from the consequences and guilt of our sin. This is to do with the redeemed people who are still frail. He cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. But was in all points tempted as we are? All oh, is a difficulty, yet without sin. What does that mean? All the monstrous things that you and I attempted to do evil, he was uh, uh, also. I don't think it's dealing with that at all. It's dealing with the temptations which you find in this book, tempting to believe God. And he passed through all that. Sin accepted is the true translation. Not without sin. Sin's not in mind at all. But again, that must wait till we get to it, to demonstrate by chapter and verse the meaning of the expression. But I'm doing all this, not to befog you, but so that you would at least say to yourself, Rory, it is important that we get the right point of view. For if we've got the wrong point of view, we could make these many passages speak evil instead of good. Here we have a people who are redeemed people, holy brethren, who are surrounded by temptation to draw back. We have no conception except for what we read and see what it meant to a Hebrew to step out from Judaism into Christianity all the many things that were to hold him back and make him fearful and afraid and draw back. And so the exaltation all the way through. And in chapter 4, he says, verse 1, Let us therefore fear lest the promise being left us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short. It's all the way through, you see. So we must come back again and look at our earlier chapter, but these things are most important. One of the words that I think we must pause over for a moment is verse in verse 4 of chapter 1. Verse 4 of chapter 1. It's one of those key words. It says, being made so much better than the angels, as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. Being made so much better than the angels. That balances chapter 2. Verse 9. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels. There are the two passages. On the top of the chart, you will see that better. In the uh, first case, better than angels. In the second case, 
little lower than the angels. So in, in no case does this refer to the essential nature of the Son of God. It's most obvious if we're going to accept Hebrews 1.9 or 1.9 and 10 uh, verse 10 particularly that thou Lord in the beginning hast laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens are the works of thy hands. If we're going to believe that that's true well then we don't need a revelation to tell us that the, the creator of heaven and earth is better than angels. We know it. But if he laid aside his glory for our sakes if he humbled himself and became a man for our sakes, and became a little lower than the angels because that's how Adam was created and like the parable of the Good Samaritan, he came where he was. Our Saviour didn't stoop and lower himself to become an archangel. That would have been a, a condescension. He lowered himself to become a man and that therefore he became a little lower than the angels. Now angels had a place in the scheme of things because you read in chapter 2 that if the word spoken by angels were steadfast, and that's the giving of the law, Galatians 3, Acts 7 will tell you that the law was given by the disposition of angels. But chapter 2 says, he hath not submitted the world to come to angels. Oh no. And chapter 2 says, for verily he took not on him the nature of angels. He took on him the seed of Abraham. So all the way you see, the angel is being set aside. It's full of angels, this first section, partly because the Hebrews were particularly associated with angelic ministry, from the call of Abraham right through to the New Testament. Angels are there ministering. But the word I think is the key word, is the word inheritance in verse 4. Be ye made so much better than the angels, as he hath by inheritance. This is something that is accomplished, and something which has been granted to him as a consequence of his work. So chapter 2 says he was made unto lower than the angels but we see him crowned with glory and honour in connection with the fact that he tasted death for every man. So it's for our sakes that he stooped below the angels and for our sakes he is now exalted above them. He didn't need it himself and it's not for himself, it's for us. Now this word inheritance is waiting for us in more passages than one and I want to give it a hearing. Would you look at the end of this chapter 1? Verse 14, still speaking about these angels. Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for them that shall be heirs of salvation? This salvation that's being spoken of in Hebrews is an inherited thing. It's not the sheer gift of God that we have either in John's Gospel or in Paul's epistle to the Romans and Ephesians. There's no contradiction. God is dealing with an entirely different phase and aspect. This is an inherited salvation. Shall we go on? Chapter 6, verse 12. Verse 11 says, We desire that every one of you do show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope unto the end, that ye be not slothful. And by the way, when we are considering this passage, we all discover that right bang in the very spot all oh, these are thrills to me to discover these things. I don't know how you feel about it. But when I read in chapter 5, they were dull of hearing, verse 11. And then I saw in chapter 6 that the very self-same word recurs where they translate it slothful. He's on the subject all the time. These were dull of hearing. They were not growing. This is not salvation. They've got life, but they weren't using it. 
They were babies when they ought to have been grown men. So he says, that ye be not dull of hearing or slothful, but followers of them who through faith and patience inherit the promises. This is something which has to do with faith and patience and following on and not being slothful. None of those words have to do with a sinner seeking salvation. When I woke up to the fact that I needed a saviour, I'm very thankful that the preacher didn't tell me that I mustn't be slothful, I must have faith and patience, I must have the things which accompany salvation which I hadn't got. He didn't put me all endwise like that. He simply said, He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, and it's a finished thing if you close with it. My theology was crude, but one thing I knew, that I'd passed from death unto life. Now, now, having got to that position, I can come to Hebrews and get this exhortation to go on and ask me what I'm doing with that gift of God. Whether I'm trading it in the dust or whether I'm using it to his glory. And that's the insistence here. Now chapter 12, verse 17, this word inheritance. Chapter 12. For ye know how that afterward this is Esau despised his birthright. When he would have inherited the blessing... He was rejected. He would have inherited. He's telling people all the time who are reading this, I want you to see yourself in this. I'm telling you about Esau because he's an example for you to avoid. I'm giving you examples of others because they are examples to follow. Chapter 3 and 4 are examples of unbelief and chapter 11 are examples of those who believed even though they died without seeing the promises. They saw them afar off. All God's given the whole thing, both sides in this epistle, if we'll only keep them in their right place. Well, now the word inheritance meets us in chapter 9. little different uh, verbal form of the same word. Chapter 9, 15. And for this cause he is the mediator of the new covenant, that by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the first covenant, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. And chapter 11, verse 8. By faith Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he should after receive for an inheritance, obeyed. He didn't go out in order to find the forgiveness of sins and salvation. He was going out to find an inheritance, and he obeyed inheritance. And again, in uh, chapter 1, we go back on our track because we have this emphasis upon the, in the inheritance from another angle still, for inheritance implies an heir. So it says in chapter 1, verse 2, He hath in these days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things. And if this word appointed, I don't see, don't see how the Apostle... Paul could have known that we were going to use the word appointed. That is what they call a what? An anachronism? Well, anyhow. This is what I do know. That the word anointed means appointed. Because there are two words translated anointed and one of them means to appoint. See, anointing left to itself is merely putting oil on a person's head and you say, what's he in a beauty parlour? What's the idea? No, the anointing was because he was a, being appointed. It's its purpose that you've got to remember. He was being appointed as a prophet or a priest or a king. And so here now he's appointed, this anointed one, to be the heir. This is an inheritance which is entirely outside of all idea of himself. 
before the world was. This is the inheritance in connection with the great scheme of redemption for which he was the mediator. So he's appointed heir of all things. And then by him he made or put together the ages, not the worlds. Or again in chapter 6, 17. Wherefore, wherein God willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise. That's the ones he's exhibiting all these two. The heirs of promise that they may be confirmed, strengthened and helped forward. Somebody's opening that door, peeping in. Will you just grab them or something? And in chapter 11, 7, once again, here we have not Abraham with his inheritance, but we have Noah. And you may not quite remember that Noah also was an heir. By faith Noah being warned of God of things not seen as yet, moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house. I like that reference, moved with fear, because some people think if you've got faith you never have fear. Well, my feeling is if you never have fear, you never have faith. A person who's wood and stone and fears nothing, he doesn't believe anything. Oh no, this man was moved with fear, but he was moved with faith at the same time. That's a moral person. That's the real thing. He prepared an ark to the saving of his house, by which he condemned the world and became the heir. When we come to chapter 11, I'm still anticipating, aren't I? We'll find these walking pairs. There's Abel and Enoch. One dies and the other is translated. There's Noah and Abraham, both heirs. There's Isaac and Jacob, both living in tents. Or they go in pairs right the way through so that one can help the other. What he doesn't say about one, he'll say about the other. But we're not there yet, are we? Now, there's still, I want still to pursue this word inheritance a bit further because it's so important. Will you come back now to Matthew, the fifth chapter, and carry our thoughts a little further through? Matthew 5. This, of course, is the Sermon on the Mount. And the Sermon on the Mount has a chapter 6 where everything that is said is followed up by a reward in heaven, a reward the openly. They have their reward all the way down, a reward. And salvation is not a reward. And you don't get salvation by being persecuted for righteousness. You get salvation because you're a poor, helpless sinner can do nothing at all. Salvation isn't in view in the Sermon on the Mount. Now when we look at chapter 5, verse 5. Blessed are the meek, for they should inherit the earth, inherit it. And when you look at chapter 5, 19. Whosoever therefore shall break one of these least commandments and shall teach men so, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do and teach them the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you should in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. Here's a point. I'm only leaving it with you. If you're not really justified before God, you'll never enter the kingdom. But if you do enter the kingdom, some of you may be great and some of you may be less. And that gives a little light upon that passage which is such a problem to most of us. That John the Baptist, he was very, very wonderful. But the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And then we pry those all oh, that means any of us because we're all Christians. No, friends, no. 
You've got to go a long way to beat John the Baptist. At least in the kingdom of heaven, there's got to beat John the Baptist. I think that's a little word to make us stop for a minute and think what we are claiming. Now this word inheritance, let's come again. Um, Should we look at chapter 18, verse 1? Chapter 18, verse 1. At the same time came the disciples unto Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Still on the question, you see, who is greatest? And at the end of this same chapter, you get the parable of the man who didn't forgive his fellow, who was put into prison, and he wasn't coming out till he paid the last halfpenny, or was it the last farthing? Well, anyhow, that's not salvation. No person ever redeemed and saved is put back in prison and told he's got to pay the lot again. But if you're on the ground of this inheriting, or not going in, if you're not going on unto perfection, you're drawn back to perdition. That's all within its proper environment. Nothing to do with being saved and lost. And in uh, chapter 19, we have these words, verse 29. And every one that hath forsaken houses or brethren or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my name's sake shall receive an hundredfold and shall inherit everlasting life. Are you going to start inheriting everlasting life, friends? You've got something to do. But this is entirely different from receiving everlasting life as the gift of God. John 3.16 is God so loved the world that he gave his son that you should not perish but have everlasting life. That's one thing. But to inherit it, you're going to leave father, mother, sister, brother, lands and everything. That's another story. So you see, what I'm trying to do is say, all do check up on these things. Do stop for a minute and see. Now Hebrews is urging us to go on unto perfection. And this has to do with things which accompany salvation and not to do with salvation itself. Well now I think it's time we came back once more to the uh, first and first two chapters to get a little further idea of its general teaching. Would you look at the section Hebrews 2 verses 5 to 18. Verse 5 says, For unto the angels hath he not put in subjection the world to come whereof we speak, but one in a certain place testified, saying, What is man that thou art mindful of him, or the son of man that thou visitest him? Thou madest him a little lower, and the margin put you wise over this. Thou madest him a little while inferior. Not merely made him a little lower, but made him only just for a little time lower, because he was destined to be above them in many instances. Thou crownest him with glory and honour, and didst set him over the works of thy hand. Now Paul is the only one who quotes the next words, Thou hast put all things under his feet. Of course you may say to me, well you're sure that Paul didn't write Hebrews. But I'm sure that Paul wrote Ephesians and he quotes this verse. I'm sure Paul wrote 1 Corinthians 15 and he quotes this verse. And here's the only other quotation in the scriptures. But you say, well somebody else could quote it, yes. But 1 Corinthians 15 says, that he is accepted that they put all things under him. That's an extraordinary deduction, isn't it? To look at the whole universe and say the only exception that's not beneath the feet of the Son of God is the Father himself. Well, now look at the argument here, verse 8. Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet. 
For him that he put all in subjection unto him, he left nothing that is not put under him. I can sense they're the same writer and the same line of thought. And so far as I'm concerned, there's any amount of evidence that Paul wrote the epistle to the Hebrews. But now he says, Oh, now we see not yet all things put under him. Not yet. This is destined to be. This is foreshadowed. And the work has been done upon which it will rest. But what do we see? We see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honour, that he by the grace of God should taste death for every man. Now, here's a strange expression. Should taste death. Goes on to say, for it became him, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons unto glory, not bringing poor seeking sinners to salvation. They are sons that he's bringing to glory. To make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings, for both he that sanctifies and they who are sanctified are all of one, for which cause is not ashamed to call the brethren. So we have, we see not, but we see Jesus. And then we have, in verse 9, a little lower than the angels and crowned with glory. And at the end of the chapter, as we've seen, I think perhaps we ought to include verse 14, for as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part in the same. This is only focusing our attention upon that which is insisted on in chapter 1, because we know that angels are sons of God. But it says, unto which of the angels said he at any time, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. No angel is a begotten son of God. This is flesh and blood. So he took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. But verily, he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Wherefore in all things it behoved him to be made like unto his brethren, that, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people, for in that he himself hath suffered, being tempted, he is able to succour, come to their assistance. That's not salvation. That's after you're saved. You call upon him in the time of trouble, and he helps you, them that are tempted. And so we've got that section in front of us, stressing the two outstanding characteristics, both associated with the name Joshua, the captain and the high priest. There are strange little expressions that we find in, I'm coming back to chapter 1 once more, in uh, connection with the inherited name. It says in verse 4, being made so much then we, we haven't got any way of putting the next little bit by how much he hath obtained a more excellent name by so much and by how much. But you'll find the same mode of expression is in chapter 7, 22. By so much was Jesus made a surety of a better testament. By so much is one of the ways in which he's seeking to stress the difference between all the types and shadows. As you go through this epistle, one after another he deals with them. He speaks about Adam, as you've seen in chapter 2. He speaks about Moses in chapter 3. He speaks about Joshua in chapter 4. 
He speaks about Aaron in chapter 5 and so on until he's included the priests and the sacrifices and the tabernacle itself and the old covenant. They all go. And the blessed fact in this is that that's a part of the lesson. If you want something to help you dealing with a problem and a trouble that some Christian has, you've you've gone to them and you've said, well, brother or sister, have you ever considered the teaching of Scripture concerning the high calling which is revealed in Paul's epistle to the Ephesians? And they begin to listen with a certain amount of interest. Oh, here's something which is wonderful. But they become conscious that there's a little snagger connected with it. It puts them a little bit out of court. Uh, They may be looked upon as being a little bit loose in the upper story, or they may get into trouble with the pastor or the man next door or the woman they live with who's looking after them and won't let them think for themselves. You know, oh my, these things are real. And what does the apostle do? He brings before us the people who are perplexed and troubled because we've never had an upbringing like these Hebrews. We've never had it dinned into us from the beginning of our days that this people to which I belong as a Jew is separated from all peoples of the earth. We've never gone to our place of worship since we were 12 years of age and stood up with the rest of the congregation every time we have the service and said, God, I thank thee I was not created a Gentile. They, they say that every time in their service still. And so we've got a people that were indoctrinated with the idea that the law was eternal. The law was eternal, so much so that they could be told without feeling ridiculous that on every Sabbath, God himself wears the phylacteries up there in glory. God himself. The law was eternal. And then to be told by the Apostle Paul that he was waxing old and vanishing away and God found fault with it. To be told by the Apostle that it's not possible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sin. To be told by the Apostle that no, no perfection could come by the Levitical priesthood for the very obvious reason that they all died one after another. But this man, this man, hath an intransmissible priesthood. And all the way through Hebrews, the one great corrective is he remains. You remember in chapter 1 where it says the, the present creation, for the part of it which is vulnerable at least, is going to be rolled up and packed away like a worn-out garment, or as the Old Testament says, like the packing up of a tent when the work's done. And then, but thou art the same. Thy years shall not fail, thou art the same. Now I pursue right through that epistle to the last chapter, and if I've forgotten it, the apostle hasn't, or if the apostle didn't remember it, the Spirit of God did, and right in the last chapter he's back on it. Remember, he says, those who have had the rule over you whose faith follow, considering the end of their conversation. What is it? Jesus Christ the same yesterday and today and forever. Don't you see, when you're dealing with somebody who's on the edge of things, don't be arguing about before the overthrow of the world and cataboli and all this business. Don't say mysteries and principalities and powers. Get this well in that it doesn't matter what you give up and what you lose. Christ remains the centre, the foundation, and the top stone of this glorious calling. And if you get that in, you've got a hope that they may begin to realise, well, what's it matter what else I lose or what I gain, if that remains the faith. That's the insistence, that he abides, 
and he feels all the emptiness that may otherwise be felt. If you feel, if you, if you could put yourself into their condition, if they began to feel, well, we are losing something, if the ironic priesthood all turns out a failure, but he says, he's a priest after the order now, isn't it? A different order. If they said, well, look at the sacrificial law, we have to do it every, t- every day and every feast day and all this, but he said he's offered one sacrifice for sins forever and sat down at the right hand of God. That's what nobody else ever did. The priests never sat down in connection with their work. So, it's Christ himself filling the bill all the time continuously. Well then the next is the emphasis upon recompense and reward. Will you look at a few passages? Uh, chapter 2, verse 2. For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward. We'll have to think of reward as always something nice, aren't we? But a just recompense of reward can be something rather nasty if you haven't deserved the good and you've got the evil that comes as a consequence. This is disobedience. But then there's another side in chapter 10, 35, He says, cast not away therefore your confidence, which hath great recompense of reward, for ye have need of patience, that after ye have done the will of God ye might receive the promise. For yet a little while, and he that shall come will come, and will not carry. Now the just shall live by faith. But if any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him, that we are not of them who draw back unto perdition. But of them that believe, not to the saving of the soul, that's another one we've got to go into, I'll only give you the literal, but but of them that believe to the acquisition of the soul. Now you say, what's all that about? Well, having said so far, I must say a bit more, Matthew 16, you take up your cross and follow him. That's not evangelical gospel salvation, that's the believer, the disciple. And you save your soul or you acquire it. You may lose your soul in this life if you follow Christ, but you'll gain it in that day. The scripture practically never uses the salvation of the soul in an evangelical sense. They're not told to save our souls, they're told to lose our souls today, but it'd be a rather a strange sort of gospel campaign, wouldn't it, when the great text was, well now let's all lose our souls, friends. I wonder what they'd say. Perhaps it'd be a good thing to make an attempt sometimes, but that's the teaching. Not save your soul, lose it. And you'll gain it when it's worth having. And then, one more passage, chapter 11, 26. This is Moses, esteeming the reproach of Christ, greater riches than the treasures in Egypt. Why? Well, he was a man of business, a cute man, but he had respect unto the recompense of the reward. He says, I'm not giving up anything. Oh, he said, I choose rather to suffer affliction with the people of God and enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season at his right hand that are pleasures forevermore. So he says, that's what I'm going for. Not salvation, but the things which accompany salvation. And then that reminds me of the, of the uh, title uh, that is given concerning God himself in this um, epistle. He that cometh to God must believe that he is. Well, if he is, and he said so, he would say, I am. That's the great title given in the book of Exodus. He that cometh to God must believe that he is, and what's the next thing? And he's the rewarder 
of those that diligently seek him. Not the saviour of those who believe him, but the rewarder. That's the thing in this epistle all the time. And if I keep on at it long enough, friends, if you'll endure it long enough, you begin perhaps to believe that it is true. Every aspect of this epistle is stressing the things which company salvation after you be delivered and warning you not to turn back as they did after they came out of Egypt. It distance meant enchantment of the view. Most said, think of the onions and the garlic and the fish, all the tasty bits we had in Egypt, and now manna was now given them on the from, from God. The manna, which is a type of Christ, and they said, and all we've got to eat is and I don't know whether you could translate the scripture by hunching your shoulders and not saying a word. If you could, that's what they said. That sounds Irish, doesn't it? But I'm speaking about Hebrew. If you read the Hebrew bit for yourself, it says, and all there is to eat is this. And that's the only way you can translate it. Because you have to have an illustrated Bible, a bit wagging his head. See, that's their estimation when they went out. And if you've never felt anything like it, well, you've had an extraordinary experience. I think many of us have had the same feelings of Asaph, who said, I have believed in vain. I've cleansed my hands in innocency. Look at their eyes standing out in fatness. They have more than heart could wish until he went into the sanctuary of God. Then he understood the end. And there's the sanctuary of God here waiting to get the right direction and the right point of view. And so we have the emphasis on this feature. I think perhaps we'll have to leave it there, otherwise I shall be going on into other subjects. When we meet together next time, we shall have to consider more particularly the uh, passages that deal with the provocation in the wilderness. You'll see there the word tempting comes. Tempting comes many times in the wilderness. And that will lead us on to the question at the end of chapter, uh, uh, at the end of chapter three, no, the end of chapter two, and the end of chapter 4, where it speaks about being tempted in all points. For that is an essential characteristic of a wilderness journey. If you and I are in any measure parallel in our calling through this wilderness of a world, we need to have all the help we can from Old Testament passages which have been written for our learning upon whom, as Paul says, the ends of the world have come. And it will be a great comfort to us to know that one walks by our side that there's no possibility for us to be anywhere, at any time, under any temptation that belongs to our pilgrim journey, but what we can look to him and know that he is not without sympathy. That's where the, the word sympathy comes in the scriptures. Uh, our version says, not touch with the feeding of our infirmities. But the word sympathy is made up of two parts, sewn together with, and patty, he is a part of the word to feel or to suffer. So he knows by experience. He's walked this way. He has been tempted in all points, yet without sin. So may I leave it there and ask you to fill in the gaps, because if I'm going to stop on these two chapters and take every piece by piece, it will defeat our object, because we are recording these as well as giving them to you. And if we have a tape recording of the epistles of the Hebrews, that goes like Tennyson's brook forever, well, people will be dissuaded from using it and we want them to get the value of it. And so, may the Lord give us grace, not only to know we are saved, but then to realise that the saved have been given a pilgrim characteristic. They were pilgrims and strangers. They had something in front of them which 
directed and attracted them. We are not looking for the same thing, but we are moving with the same spirit, for our citizenship is in heaven, from whence we look for a saviour, and that should have some influence upon our walk, witness, and manner of life. So for the time being, we leave it, and ask that God may bless the testimony that is given in this chapel, and then taken to the ends of the earth in God's good time. Amen.